0: By a show of hands, how many of you have ever snuck a peek at your Christmas presents? Come on, let's see your hands. Be honest. How many of you have ever been, I don't know, maybe embarrassed by how bad your parents were at hiding Christmas presents? Anybody? I'm going to tell you, my parents were the worst, and they're here today. And so I'm just going to let you know hiding presents in your closet, not a good idea. I remember the year my parents upgraded from their closet and decided they were going to put them in the attic. And my brother and I quickly found him and that jerk brother of mine sold me out. Uh, so forget you. Uh, there he is right there. And the next year, my parents decided that they were going to upgrade their hiding skills, and they took him over to my grandparents' house, which was the easiest find ever, just because I found him on accident. I wasn't even looking. But the one I'm most proud of is the year that she hid it at her best friend's house, and somehow I found him over there. Like, I just had this sense. And you might think, how could he do this? Why would he do that? Why would he ruin Christmas? My motives were not ugly in this. My motives were perfect. I wanted to make sure my parents got me the right gift for Christmas. Anybody else with me on this motivation? Like, I wasn 't ugly here. I just wanted to make sure that if they had not gotten the right thing, that I could help encourage them to get the right gift and A lot of times when we look at motives, there are ugly motives behind our actions, and that's what we 're going to be talking about today. we're going to be looking at this man who was rich, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he was a man of great significance and influence, and he went to Jesus. To get this thing that he really wanted. And there's some good things that we can learn from him and his example. And there are some things that we can learn from his example that we should avoid. And so if you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 17. And walking through verse 22. And this is how the passage says. It says, and he was setting out. This is Jesus. And Jesus was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have done all of these things from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. Now before we look at some of the things that the rich young ruler got wrong, I want to focus on the things that he got right. He had doubt in his life, he had emptiness in his life, he had fear in his life, he had loneliness in his life, and instead of just sitting in all of these things, instead of just absorbing them and keeping them to himself, he decided that he was going to deal with this. know a lot of people come into church with doubt, fear, anxiety. In fact, people have called 2020 the year of fear. And as you think through this, we can just kind of sit and wallow in our own sorrow and loneliness and isolation and fear. Or we can go to the source. And this is what he gets right. He comes seeking God. He has an issue and he goes after what he knows to be the good teacher. A teacher who gets everything right, who's knowledgeable and powerful. He went seeking after his answers instead of just staying where he was, controlled by these factors. There's another thing that he does. He came urgently and desperately and humbly. I love how whenever we see this passage, it says, whenever Jesus was setting out, this man ran to him and knelt before him. This ruler of people, this man who... Most historians believe was a teacher in the synagogue, one who had his own servants, who obviously was wealthy and powerful, came. He runs to Jesus, and he who was a ruler submitted himself by getting on his knees. He knelt before Jesus, and he said, teacher. Again, not only in posture and position, but in submission to God, he gets this right. And not only does he do that, he comes to the right source for eternal life. Where he had fears and questions, doubts, and he knew he was missing something, he went to Jesus. And I think that we should celebrate Getting those things right. Because so often whenever we have doubts. Or anxieties or questions. We keep it into ourselves. And we just kind of go into our own cave. But this man went seeking for answers. And I think that's a good thing to do. Whenever we have pain and hurt and sorrow in our lives. Let's go back to the text. And it says. And while he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good, but God alone. Now Jesus was setting the table to make sure that this man understood the reality of his state. This man, I believe, represents many people who go to church, many people who are seeking eternal life. He thought that his works would propel him into a place to where he would be able to get to heaven, to get to glory, to obtain or inherit eternal life. He thought that he could work his way to heaven. And in this, he sees Jesus and he's like, obviously you got what I want. And because you got I'm going to come to you. And he says, good teacher. And Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, Jesus who never sinned, Jesus who was perfect, looks at this man and does not receive that adjective. In fact, he says, why do you call me good? Who are you to think that anyone is good? God and God alone is good. He's saying that God is the only one who can claim this title, and in this he's saying good is an absolute quality. It's not relative. He's saying the the only thing that could be good, and the reason that only God could be attributed with the title of good is because to be good means you are fully righteous. To be good means you are fully holy. To be good means that you are set apart from sin. And what we like to do is say that we're good because we're not as bad as other people. We like to say or think that we're good people because maybe we're not the murderer. We're not the the rapist. We're not the idolater, right? We're not the adulterer. Because we haven't done these things, we think that we are good. And in that, that we can earn our salvation. And that's where this rich young ruler is. He's saying, I'm good. But really what he's saying is, I'm better than others. We need to understand this. God and his goodness is absolute. Good is not ever relative. So when we think of like evil, when we think of bad deeds, I think maybe the legal system can help us with this. There are infractions or violations. We might be like, look, I've never ran anybody over with my car. Maybe I've gone 5 to 7, 8, 10, 15, 20 miles over the speed limit. That doesn't make me a bad person, right? Minor violation. Some of us might think, well, I've only done a misdemeanor, just, a, you know, just one or two felony misdemeanors. It's not like I've done a full felony here. I'm not that bad. I haven't done that many things. And so because of that, Because we are not as bad as others, that propels us into a mentality that somehow we're good. And the problem with this is that no one is good except God alone. And Jesus is establishing with this man who wants to work and earn his salvation, this understanding that the only way you get to God is through Christ and Christ alone. In fact, the picture of goodness is seen every time we get a glimpse into heaven. Whether it's in Isaiah or Revelation, anytime in Scripture, there's this picture of holy, 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 the angels surrounding the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with his glory. This holiness that God has fully set apart. And this man who comes to God, who comes to Jesus, good teacher, has this teacher look at him and say, I'm not having this idea, this concept of goodness. Our works, you need to understand, your works, rich young ruler, our works, church family, are never good enough for God because no one is good but God. And if we come into our mindset and our approach and our relationship with God that we can earn salvation, we're sadly mistaken. Because our righteousness, our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. When we think about this, it kind of changes the approach to God. It changes our approach to salvation. One of the hardest things for Christians to do is share their faith With people they think are good. But there is none good but God. And to be good is to be perfect in holiness and righteousness. Which is why we must hear and receive and understand that no one is good except God alone. The very words of Jesus. He had an ugly understanding of good. This understanding or this thought process that if he followed the law enough, if he worked hard enough, if he tithed, if he went to church, if he did all these things, he could be acceptable to God. And what we see is really not only did he have an ugly understanding of good, he had an ugly understanding of the law. The passage continues in verse 19 and it says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not the fraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. What I've always been amazed at about in this passage, from as long as I can remember, is how Jesus didn't argue with him. Jesus didn't look at him and say, you say you don't lie. You're lying right now. I know you've done these things. You're wicked, ugly, and deceitful. I know your sinful thoughts. I know what you said about your mom or your dad. He didn't argue. He didn't point out this guy's flaws. He didn't look at him and say, you're arrogant and proud. Instead, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And to me, this is one of The most powerful truths in all of scripture. This gives us the mentality that God has towards us. And looking at this man who was lost. And looking at this man who knew although he had everything on earth was far from God. Who was proud and arrogant in his approach. Who claimed to be righteousness. God didn't look at him with anger and disgust. It says that God looked at him and Jesus loved him. What's so powerful about this to me is I know that there are people who refuse to walk inside the doors of a church because they feel less than adequate to enter into God's presence. They look at the church and they say, I am too bad, I am too sinful, I am too wrong. I am not worthy of coming to church. And they might come on Christmas and Easter, but they only come on those two days to make their mom or their grandmom happy. Otherwise, they come in with shame, a disposition of unworthiness, because they think their lifestyle means that God doesn't like them. They think their lifestyle means that God hates them and that he's angry with them. But God doesn't approach us that way. He doesn't look at us with disgust. He looks at us with love, and that love is not small. It is great. It is a a love that is greater than all of our sins. It is a, a love that is reckless in its approach. It is a love that that God has for us that would not even withhold his only son. But he would give it to us freely. He would give Jesus to us freely because he wants us so desperately to have a relationship with us. He looks at us in our our sinfulness and not to, to bring a hand of judgment down. But he offers Christ to bring us out of the cesspool of sin. He loves us enough to not give up on us. To not quit. He loves us enough. To always be there. To be our rock and our fortress. He loves us with an everlasting. Unceasing. Permanent. Pure. Perfect love. Even when we approach him with arrogance. Jesus loves us. In our sin. And it is so. Important for us to grasp. This reality. Because as. Christ Jesus has loved us. We are to love those around us. The passage. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've done all these things. I've kept them all from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. His understanding of the law was warped. He thought that by doing certain things, it would show how good he was. He thought that by doing certain things, he could earn relationship with God. He thought by doing certain things that he could obtain eternal life. He thought the law was meant to bring about righteousness. But the law was meant to establish the goodness of God. Peter and Paul talk about this in the New Testament, how the law reveals our sinfulness. The law shows us how God is holy and we're not. The law shows us how unrighteous we are and how great God is. The purity and the holiness, the set-apartness of God. The law exposes the motives of our heart. The impurity of our souls. The law doesn't make us righteous. The law reveals our unrighteousness. And this man missed it. And any of us who think we can earn our salvation or who think our works can be good enough for us to inherit eternal life or who think we can work or will or wish our way to heaven missed the boat. Our works are nothing before God. We don't work so that we can be loved by God. God loves us. And we are accepted by God if we would just receive the gift of eternal life. An ugly understanding of the law. I also see he had an ugly understanding of reality. Verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Just going back to the previous passage. Do not murder, do not steal, do not kill. All of these things had to do with our relationship with fellow man. Do not commit adultery. Don't do any of these things to your neighbor. There is a shift in verse 21. Which goes not from the 6 through 10 commandments. But these are commandments 1 through 5 in the 10 commandments. These have to do with our relationship with God. Jesus looked at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful. For he had great possession. What he's getting at here. Is the heart of the matter. He says it's not your relationship with fellow man. That's going to allow you to enter into eternity. With me. It's your heart. And your position with God. And what he does in the statement is he reveals the true love that this man has in life. It's not a true love for God. It is a love for his possessions, his wealth, his power, his influence. The idolatry that he had in his heart and his life. This idolatry of things of the world instead of things of God. And we see this, and a lot of times when we think of idolatry, we think of bell worshippers, right? We think of the golden calf. We think of physically bowing a knee to a God, but we don't think about modern idols. Modern idols of a, of a bank account, or a house, or a car, or sex, or, or drugs. We don't, we don't think about the modern idols of TV. Maybe the modern idol of safety and comfort where we will say, God, I know your word says this, but I'm going to go my own way because you don't really understand this pandemic the way I do. And what God is revealing in this statement is that Jesus is calling us not to love us in the way that we want to or to love him in the way that our mind is logical. He wants us to love him just purely with all of our heart. Jesus was calling the rich young ruler to love God more than things of this world. To love God more than his wealth. To love God more than his influence. To love God more than his house. To love God more than his family. To love God more than anything. And this is what Jesus wants us to do today. It's interesting. Jesus didn't say here's what I want you to do. Walk down forward, pray a prayer, get in the water, get out of the water and you're good. He says I want your heart. I want to be number one in your life. I want to be the driving agent that dictates all of your decisions. I want you to love me more than anything and anyone else. Love me with everything. And this was challenging for the rich young ruler then, and it is challenging for us today. Because far too many of us find our worth and our significance through how many likes we get on Facebook or Instagram. Please understand this. You cannot be popular and seek after popularity and love the Lord your God with all your heart. You cannot try and please man and truly be pleasing God. Many of us don't want to say it, but our patriotism is in a form of idolatry today. That we're going to forsake our witness so that we can promote a political agenda. I don't like saying this next one. Y'all know I love sports, Right? Back to back, six times in a row. If you don't know, I'll tell you about it later. Six times in a row, champs. I like football. I like rubbing it in, especially on you longhorn people or short horned people. Can I get an amen? But whenever I propel my sports affinity into a place to where it gets in my relationship with God, I've messed up. Money is easy, a dream job is easy. Food is uncomfortable. I think the greatest form of idolatry that we suffer with today in the modern church is family. We put our kids, maybe our spouses above our relationship with God. All of those things are idolatry and all of those things keep us from God. That's what idolatry does is it puts stuff and things in the place of God. And Jesus is making it crystal clear and extremely evident that if you love anything more than me, you don't love me the right way. Because idolatry keeps us from God. It's the greatest commandment lived out. Jesus is calling this rich young ruler out from missing the boat, trying to earn something because his heart and the motivations of his heart was wrong. He wanted to look right. He wanted to obtain. He just didn't want to surrender. Which is why Deuteronomy 6.5 and Matthew 22.37 and Mark 12.30, Luke 10.27 all give us the same message. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God wants your affection. And where we would find it a whole lot easier to have a list of things that we could do to earn salvation, to work for salvation, Jesus calls us to love him with everything. To believe in our heart, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not to work for it, not to act for it, but to give him everything. And that's why we celebrate Communion. This is a time where I'd like for you to get your cups, slide that first layer off, and, and grab the bread. The bread is an indication of Jesus' body that was broken for us. Because our works will never be good enough, Jesus' body was broken. He was beat, he was nailed to a tree. His body was broken. And when we take this cracker unleavened bread, And we eat of it. We do so in remembrance of his body that was broken for us. Please eat. We have the cup, which is filled with juice. And as we peel it back, we know that if we're not careful, it might stain our clothes, right? And I actually like that a little bit because it's the blood of Christ that stains us clean scripture tells us without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus took the cup and having given it he said this is my blood which was shed for you. As often as you drink of the cup do so in remembrance of me. We partake in the Lord's Supper. To remind us that Christ did what the law could not do. We eat of the bread and we drink of the juice as a reminder. That it is the work of Christ on the cross. Having living, lived a perfect life. Becoming the perfect sacrifice. That he died. And he was buried. And three days later having satisfied the wrath of God having paid the price for our sins, having borne our sins on the cross, he rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And in Christ, we have eternal life. We have been in this series called Ugly Christmas Sweater, highlighting some of the ugly things that we do in our lives, whether it's our words, our actions, our deeds, our motives, our fruit. And out of the ugly, God is able to make something beautiful. So what I want to do at this time is I want to give us beautiful motivations by which we are to live. We need to live motivated by the beauty of Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't point out all of our flaws and insecurities, all of our shortcomings. We need to live motivated by the beauty of Jesus who loves us in our sins, who receives us just as we are. The beauty of Jesus who refuses to leave us that way. But he transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit and he calls us to himself, to a relationship with him. Live by the beauty of Jesus, who gives us an example to love the unlovable, to receive those who are rejected, to welcome the discarded, just like He welcomed us. Not only that, we need to live motivated by the beauty of grace grace that is greater than all of our sins. Grace that is greater than the wickedness of our hearts. Grace that is greater than our past regrets and mistakes. Even our future regrets and mistakes. Live motivated by the grace by which you have been saved. Not of works lest anyone should boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not only should we live motivated by grace, we should be givers of grace, quick to forgive, abundant in mercy and loving kindness. We should live motivated by the beauty of salvation. We should approach God Almighty, grateful and thankful That he loves us with an everlasting love. That he forgives our sin. That his love is what held him on that cross. His love and salvation that withheld the angels from heaven. Salvation. That we praise and worship on Christmas, the birth of the Son of Man, Son of God, who was placed in a manger, a feeding trough, who would live a life not of wealth, not of prominence, but of humility. Meekness, to where he would live, to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Live motivated by salvation, and be an instrument that proclaims salvation. To where, where it work or at home in our neighborhoods, or our communities, or on social media, that we will proclaim that Jesus lives. That He died for us. And that in the same way we have received salvation, that He offers salvation to all. Live motivated by the beauty of Christ and all that He offers us. You're following along in the notes. There's one more point. And it says, I will live motivated by, and it's blank. I will not give you an answer for that. That is yours to decide. We live motivated by the law. We live motivated to do your own thing. We live motivated by safety and comfort. Will you live motivated to obtain more? Or will you live motivated because you are loved and received just as you are to love Jesus with all that you are? You have to decide.